Maritime finance is the topic of the day. Asset-backed lending is the strategy. And we're joined by Sven Ng, Senior Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Entrust Global. Sven, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me. I've got a lot to learn today because I do not know a whole lot about this topic and I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on because you do. Before we get going too far, I'd like to start this off the way we start them all, which is what's your hometown, your first job of any kind, and a fun fact. Wow. Uh, well, first of all, my hometown uh, is Greenwich, Connecticut, even though I, um, I was born and grew up in, in Oslo, Norway. I left that country in, uh, I got to even think now, 1979 to go to school in the U.S. And the reason why I ended up here in the U.S. in the first place was because I was an athlete growing up. I was a swimmer. And so I came here on a the, on the swimming scholarship. I was actually planning to become a study in medicine, become a doctor. And after high school, I worked in a in nursing home for a year, preparing for, uh, for studies in Oslo. But it turned out that it was difficult to combine sports at a high level and a university degree in Norway. So that's why I ended up in the US. Now, along the way, instead of studying medicine, I ended up studying finance. So really made a big, big change. But uh, so I came here in 79. And um, apart from a period of six years between 86 and 92, when I went back to Oslo, thankfully met my wife, I've really been here in the US most of the, almost the entire time. The only time I spent two years in Singapore between 95 and 97. Now, my background is on the banking side. That's where I spent most of my career. But the last 12 years or so, I spent mostly on the asset management side. As far as a fun fact. Um, the swimming, what's, what was your event? That's a, fun, that's a very fun fact. What was your swimming event? So I, uh, I was really a backstroke swimmer, if you're talking about the sport itself, but I was pretty versatile. I was on the national team in Norway for about 10 years, and that's why I got offers to, to come to the U.S. Uh, on a swimming scholarship. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so, uh, but that was a long time ago now. So I retired from swimming in 1983 when I, when I graduated from college. So um, I was 23 years old at the time. It turns out that you and our editor-in-chief, Lindsay Michaels, both went to Ohio University. You have that fun fact in common, too. There you go. So you're involved at Interest Global at the senior most level. You're on the management committee. You're on the global investment committee. But your background really is maritime finance and asset-backed lending. Yeah. Can you just at a high level talk about maritime financing? Well, so, so as I mentioned, I've been in this industry uh, for most of my career, actually got into the maritime industry in 1987. I worked for a Norwegian bank at the time. If you look at the history of Norway, shipping was always a very large part of the, uh, the economy and the history. Now, of course, now it's more oil and gas and renewables and so on. But throughout the history of Norway, because of the long coastline, the maritime industry was always important. The trade between Europe and, and Norway and so on. So the fact that I ended up in that industry was not that surprising because a lot of people in Norway actually end up working in the, in the industry. And as I said, on the banking side is where I spent most of my career. But the reason why I ended up with Entrust Global was it was kind of interesting because as I worked in the industry, particularly post-financial crisis, you know, banks started to pull back from lending. There were new regulations coming into the banking industry. And, uh, and we also saw private equity getting into the maritime industry in a pretty big way starting around 2012. 
and the years thereafter. And also hedge funds got into the industry by acquiring large distressed bank portfolios. So I had a lot of dialogue with, with PE firms as well as hedge funds back, uh, back in those days. They would call me for advice, sometimes offering jobs and so on. But it was only when I got a call from Interest Global in the fall of 15 that I really got interest because they were the first one to call me about the lending side. You know, not buying ships, you know, buy low, sell high. They were interested in the lending side because of the banking dislocation. And that to me was very intriguing because that was what I really had been doing most of my career, even though 35 years, you obviously get involved in different aspects. You know, I got involved in private equity and, and the capital markets and so on, but the lending side was really always my, my bread and butter. So, so they were the first ones to really look at this industry from a lending perspective. And that was very, very compelling to me. Our, our chairman CEO, Greg Heimovitz, had the same view of the industry that I did at the time. In fact, was that the, the competitive environment had dramatically changed from before the financial crisis until 2000, at the end of 2015, when we got in touch in that it had gone from being overbanked to dramatically underbanked. So we both had a meeting of our minds that this is a great time to start a new business focusing on lending because of that reduced competitive situation. So, so that was the whole thesis why we started this business, focusing on lending. Even though we wanted to have a broader mandate so we can do other things, but the lending side is really what drives this business. So that's how it all, all started. And when we talk about shipping and the importance to, and I want to come back to a little bit about the resiliency of the industry, but when we're talking about shipping, it is central to the entire global economy, right? I mean- Absolutely. Everybody, you know, you see pictures when we've had all these supply chain disruptions of ships sitting around and, you know, you, nobody can get a, you know, you can't get a car, you can't get a this, you can't get a that. I mean, shipping is in the backbone of the global economy. Is that, am I right about that? Absolutely. That is 100% correct. Uh, if you think about global trade, between 85 and 90% is actually seaborne, so carried on these ships around the world. There is no substitute for it. It's by far the most economical. So it's something that really can't be interrupted. You know, it's difficult to stop uh, global trade. And, and if, if you aren't able to ship anything, everything comes to grinding halt. We saw that, for instance, back in 08 in the middle of financial crisis, if you think about these ships, the cargo on board the ships are secured by in the letters of credit market. And there, were, there was about one or two days back then where even that market had shut down and you saw the chaos right away. Everything came to grinding halt. And the fact is that it's so important that the governments got together and managed to untangle that mess right away. And if you really think about your daily life, everything that you use and you touch and so on, at some point would have been not typically been on board one of these ships, either as raw materials or as finished goods. You make a great point. I mean, I, I used to start my insurance class. I would hold up my, my iPhone and I'd say, how many of you have one of these? Well, naturally, 100% of hands went up, right? And so we started talking about what gets that thing from where it's made to where into their hands, right? And all of the insurance, the types of insurance that's touching it. But along the entire route is global shipping, right? right. And, and, and you get nothing without, as you mentioned, super efficient, no substitute for it, not going anywhere for sure. Right. But 
With regard to the asset-backed lending strategy, what is it that you're lending on? What assets are you specifically involved with? Or can you help me unpack the lending side of it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so when you think about the, the maritime industry, there are a lot of different types of products and goods that are carried on the ships. So you have a lot of different types of ships because you need to build ships to carry certain, certain cargoes. For instance, you wouldn't carry LNG in the container ships, in the container ship. So LNG is liquefied natural gas? Yeah. So there you have to purposely build an LNG vessel with the stainless steel tanks and so on. Whereas if you're thinking about a container ship, there you're carrying the steel boxes that you see on the roads everywhere, on the trucks, on the rail, rail lines, carrying finished goods. So very, very different products, meaning that you also have very different ships. Now for us as a strategy, we tend to focus on kind of like the, the, the vessels carrying your, kind of like your Toyotas compared to the car industry, the, the really the, the mainstream type of ships that carry either energy products or tankers, oil and gas, chemicals, refined products, and so on. Or we finance drive vessels, which are ships that are carrying the dry commodities like iron ore, grain, steel, coal, and so on. And we finance container ships, which are carrying these steel boxes with finished goods. We focus on those three sectors because they are the largest. That's where you have the most amount of activity in terms of buying and selling of ships, which also means that you have, that's where you have the most liquidity in the underlying ships that we're financing. That's important to us because ultimately we're a secured lending strategy. So in the, in the really, really worst case scenario, we have security in the ships and we will re- take possession of that security. And we want to be, make sure that these assets that we then take in possession, liquids we can do. If we choose to sell, we can always do it. It's just a question of price. We, we don't get stuck with assets that no one ever wants. And that's important to us. That's ultimately the, the worst case fallback position that we have. It's very rare though, that we actually end up doing that. We're not a lender to own, we're a lender to hold, meaning that we just want these loans to continue for the five year or whatever period that we were lending and click the coupon, return capital to our investors that we quarter. That's what we're all about. And just to kind of clarify, the segments that you mentioned, oil and gas, dry goods, and container ships, you're focused there because they're the most, in other words, you can sell that asset to somebody else because there's a lot of people who have demand for that type of vessel. Right. Exactly. That's the case whether we're at the peak of the market or the bottom of the market. There's always buying activity, buying and selling activity of these assets. And that's an, an important factor. We tend to shy away from the more specialized areas because you don't have that same liquidity there. Those tend to be more oligopolies where you have a handful of owners controlling the market, meaning that there's a lot less liquidity in, in the assets themselves. The size of those container ships just I was I was actually going to the Isle of Man to see the Isle of Man TT, which is a motorcycle race. It happens every year. And I saw a container ship and somebody, we don't have to put this on the podcast if this is going someplace you don't want to go. But somebody threw a number at me of how many containers are on one of those big ships. Do you have a sense of the number of those little steel? They look like little steel boxes are huge, but... How many containers can you put on one of those things? Well, you know, the, that's where we probably have seen the most developments over the last decade in terms of shipping and, and size, right? Because if you, 
if you go back to, I remember distinctly back in 07, 08, around that time frame, um, there was a lot of um, discussions and concerns around the fact that companies start to order ships that could carry as many as eight, 9,000 boxes. At the time, the question was, do we really have the infrastructure, the port infrastructure and so on to handle that many containers? Now we've seen container ships being delivered over the last few years, which can carry more than 20,000 boxes. These are huge vessels. Now that's where we're seeing growth in terms of size of ships. But if you look at other sectors, like, like the tanker side, for instance, it's actually gone the other way because if you go back a couple of decades, maybe even more now, we actually have something called ULCCs, which means ultra-large tankers, crew carriers. Those were enormous, 500 deadweight ton. They were just too big. It just didn't work. So those ships are now completely out of the market. And the largest ones we have, we refer to as VLCCs, which are very large crew carriers. They're about half, a little bit more than half that size. So there we're actually seeing things move back again because they just turned out to be too large and it just didn't work from an infrastructure perspective. That has not happened on the container side yet. And but the container side, it seems as though with those large ships with 20,000 boxes, for example, that's got to bring the cost of transportation down, right? There's got to be good efficiency there, it seems. Well, that was the whole idea, right? That you want to have as many boxes as possible on each uh, voyage. You have to be able to fill the, the vessel, though, and that's where the problem has, uh, has been that, you know, they, they just haven't been able to, a lot of periods, not to be able to fill the ships. So instead of carrying 20 plus thousand boxes, maybe you're carrying half of them. And then it's obviously not as efficient because these are very large ships that consume more fuel and so on. So the whole idea is that you need them to be able to fill the ships as well. And I'm very happy to be learning about maritime finance. Well, one of the things that is universal across asset classes is volatility, right? And we've seen supply chain issues and whatnot, and, and you've seen some inflation become a significant issue. Can you talk about your approach to decreasing volatility as a lender and how you approach the covenants, the know your customers sort of things? Yeah, no. So when you are focused on lending, it's all about making sure that you never have to take a loss, right? So it is a cyclical industry. There's no denying it. So what do you need to do to make sure that you, you don't get caught out? And, you know, the simple answer is that you need to become cyclical. In other words, when certain sectors, for instance, right now, the container sector, we talk about the container ships, have gone to unprecedented, extremely high levels. And part of that is the whole supply chain slowdown and so on. That's the time when you need to back off because what happens when, when these rates go to these very, very high levels, the values, because that comes back to the liquidity factor I talked about earlier, the values follow right behind. So if you're lending when the values are at the highest level, you end up putting too much debt on these assets for the downturn that's bound to happen at some point in the future. So this is something I've always believed in in, in my whole career that as long as you're kind of cyclical, you're going to be able to manage through the cycles no matter what happens, whether it goes up or down. And that's, a dis that's something you have to be very, very disciplined about. Now, on the banking side, unfortunately, a number of banks don't really have that same approach because they are regulated entities and the regulators tend to focus more on the cash flows than the online assets themselves, the security. And they prefer the banks to lend when the markets are at high levels because that's when you have the most amount of cash flow. 
that's also when you have the most amount of downside risk. So, so that's been a bit of a problem for the banking side in that they tend to do more business when the markets are high. We don't have to do that. So we have a very disciplined approach. Now you combine the kind of cyclical approach with covenants, particularly covenants related to underlying asset securing the loans where we effectively have a margin call type structure. If the, if the gap between the loan amount and the value of these liquid assets go below a certain buffer, we have the right to go in and tell the borrower that they need to fix that either by prepaying the loan or provide some alternative security. That's how you're able to make sure that you always have equity in these positions. As long as you have equity and you combine that with the liquidity factor, you're going to be able to work out of any, any issue. And right now, as an example, all of our loans are marked at par. And that means that you don't really get that volatility in the returns either because we just clip the coupons. We have fees and so on on the front end and back end, meaning that we have relatively stable returns throughout the entire period, whether the markets go up or down because it's mostly loans that we're doing. And that's really, it's been interesting because if you look at, uh, since we started this now six years ago, we actually started working on this almost seven years ago, we have had a very, very smooth return profile throughout. And despite the fact that we had the trade wars, for instance, if you go back to 19, which obviously had an impact on global trade, uh, we had then the pandemic, which in some ways is the ultimate test for a strategy like ours. We often get the question from investors, what will keep you up at night? And then now it's a relatively easy answer to that question. I just tell them, well, we've kind of been through it. You know, this was probably as bad as we would ever see when the pandemic hit. And we managed to do that because we focus on, on senior secure debt in a kind of cyclical way. And then now, of course, we have the war, and that hasn't really had an, an impact on our strategy at all. So we basically sailed through all of these events without having this volatility that you often will see, for instance, in, in the public markets. And can you talk a little bit about deal structure? You touched on fees, but CIOs want to know about coupon structure and, and so forth. So are these floating rate, fixed rate? What's the terms? Can you give me a little bit of background on kind of an overview of typical deal structures? Yeah, sure. So we typically do three to five year tenors for the loans. In other words, they, they might be out there for up to five years. We have not gone above five years, but most of the loans rather than three years will be towards the five year tenor. We typically do loan to values uh, in the 60 to 80% range, keeping in mind though that with our kind of cyclical approach, the amounts, the actual nominal figures are relatively low because of low values. And we have sort of a two-pronged approach. We are focused on the online assets. Very, very important to us. We want to make sure we have high quality assets. So as an example, we have a firm that will actually go on board and inspect these ships before we fund the new loan. They will look at the, the history, the quality of the bill, the ownership history. They will... Uh, look at the tanks, the engine room, and so on. And they will effectively give the ship a score, which is important. And one specific task they also have is that they will look at the fuel consumption history of these ships, because that's something that you have to be very mindful of today, because the new regulations related to the environment is coming into the industry now quickly. So you want to make sure that you don't have the worst in class when it comes to fuel consumption, which also means that they will be worst in class in terms of pollution our emissions. So all of these factors are important of the online assets, but we also look at the online bar of the company itself. Typically, the structure of these loans is that an SPV will own the assets. 
those SPVs we are borrowers. And then you have a parent company that will guarantee all of the obligations of the, the borrowers. So you look at the financial history, financial standing, and balance sheet and so on of these companies. In addition, we are very focused on the online assets as well. So it's a kind of a combination of corporate credit and underlying assets. So a fair percentage of your business is with the insurance companies, which is our entire audience, right? So how are you working with insurance investors in maritime finance with asset-backed lending at Blue Ocean? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting what happened there because after we had worked on Blue Ocean, the strategy for um, two, three years, we had a lot of, started to get a lot of interest from the U.S. insurance companies because of, really because the cash flow that we generated. Not only do we charge really high interest coupon, but these loans, which we didn't really touch upon, they also have to partly repay. So they, they have to amortize. We do not do bullet type structures. So when you combine the interest and the principal payments, there's a lot of cash flow generated that's then distributed back to, to investors. This is something that the insurance market found very compelling. But the one thing we had to solve for was that they needed a certain rating for, for capital charge uh, reasons. Similar to what the banks are struggling with today, post-financial crisis, that there are more restrictions. So we actually started working with two insurance companies on putting a structure in place. So we worked jointly on this. So we, uh, we came up with what we call the income fund, which is a structured vehicle specifically for the U.S. insurance market that carries a certain rating, which means that the capital charges are attractive and so on, but they get the same overall return as all of our other investors because everything that we do, we call capital on the provider basis from all of our different investors. So this is something that's been, been very successful for us. So right now, in terms of invested base, roughly a third is actually from the insurance market for Blue Ocean specifically. And just kind of ask this question more broadly, but am I right that you have an insurance dedicated fund if someone is interested in placing the strategy in an iColi platform? Is that an option as well? Yes, we have that as well. Correct. And so do you have insights into the size of the market where your insurers are concerned and what you see as growth there? Well, I mean, I, I don't really have a, a clear view on, on the size of the overall market, but there's no doubt that we, for this particular strategy of the ocean, we do see the insurance market as being maybe the most important one in terms of growth going forward. So, and that's why we have a couple of people internally now here at Entrust Global that are 100% dedicated working in that particular market in terms of the investment side, so or the investor side. So that that should tell you that this is something that we firmly believe is an important part of our overall investor base going forward as well. And where do you see? I mean, you've been with Blue Ocean seven years. You've had a lot of success, a lot of growth. The asset class makes tons of sense. The tenor of the loans, the structure, the LTV covenants the amortization piece of it, it fits, right? It checks a lot of boxes for insurance investors. Where do you see Blue Ocean three to five years from now? Well, first of all, we will stick to our strategy and the approach, you know, number one, in terms of having a kind of cyclical approach, having a dedicated team doing this, which is very, very important. We have a team now of nine people here within Entrust Global entirely dedicated to this. So this is the only thing that we do 
We see um, this growing because it's a very capital-intensive industry. We're estimating roughly $100 billion of debt capital is needed every year just to finance acquisitions and refinance debt maturing. So we've literally dropped in the ocean at this point. However, you also have to be very mindful of how you build a business. Now, where we see we can grow even further is that we will expand the base a little bit, maybe get into adjacent industries like ports and terminals. You know, there's an energy transition going on now. For instance, offshore wind farms need service vessels and so on. That's something we're looking at in terms of financing. So really broaden the, the asset base is one way we're looking at growing the business further. But ultimately, we will continue to do what we've been doing, make sure that we have the right client base. And most importantly, continue to take that kind of site we call approach with focusing on high quality assets and so on. It's been tremendous. I learned so much on these podcasts, Fen. I can't tell you. I thank you very much for that. Just as we kind of wrap up here, and I, I want to take you back to when you came to the U.S. and coming out of university. My background is I spent a fair amount of time teaching as a professor, and I've got a, a soft spot in my heart for young people coming out of college. And so I guess the question I'd ask is, as you look out in the world of financial markets, the industry from your chair today, what would you tell your 21-year-old self? What advice would you give yourself? That's a tricky one. I think that, well, I mean, the way that I got my first job after college was I basically just traveled from Ohio to New York spent the week just walking around knocking on doors. That's how I actually got, got into the business to begin with. I had sent out resumes to half the world, but got no positive response. But it was only when I actually got out on the pavement and started to knock on doors that I actually ended up with offers. And I had several after that week. That's something that I um, think I would, I mean, I did it and I would tell others to do the same thing. That's what I told my daughters. I have three of them. That's how they got jobs, really just going out there to, um, you know, and knocking on doors effectively. That would be my first advice. Just go out there and try to meet people, try to make connections. That's how you get into whatever business you choose to get into. I was lucky because I always wanted to get into shipping. That was always a goal of mine. I had a father, a grandfather. They both were sailors. So it, it just was a natural fit for me. That's good advice. Take the initiative. It's good stuff. Sven Ng. Senior Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, also on the Management Committee and Global Investment Committee at Entrust Global. Sven, thanks for taking the time. We've learned a lot today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.